0: Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. If you're watching on YouTube, there's a subscribe button somewhere there. I'll be back in a second. There's been a tremendous pressure put on teachers across the United States, Canada, and most of the world to return to in-school teaching. Right-wing media in the United States has been unrelenting in their attacks on teachers' unions, blaming them for unnecessarily risking negative psychological effects on children caused by continued school closures and the economic consequences of parents not returning to work. The Biden administration has joined the pressure campaign, calling for 100% of all schools to be reopened by this fall. New guidelines from the CDC state that schools can return to more or less pre-COVID distancing between desks, saying that three feet is as safe as six feet. Of course, the real question is, is six feet safe? CBS News reports the nation's largest teachers union sent a two-page letter to the Biden administration on Tuesday questioning the decision to reduce the recommended social distancing in schools to three feet between students. Randy Weingarten, president of the 1.7 million-member American Federation of Teachers, in her letter cited the study by the Institute for New Economic Thinking that stated, Contrary to the notion that even three feet of distancing is sufficient protection and six feet is overkill, the critical safety issue is that students are all uniformly at risk in poorly ventilated rooms, no matter where they are how they are distanced. With one infected person in an enclosed and poorly ventilated room, the coronavirus permeates the entire space, putting everyone inside at similar risk, regardless of where they sit. The key corrective abatement measure necessary is wholesale improvement in ventilation, filtering, and HVAC systems. Nothing whatsoever in any of the cited studies supports safely moving students closer together. The report concludes, reopening most schools now before most schools have robust protective measures and don't yet have broad ability or finances to conduct frequent surveillance testing to prevent asymptomatic spreaders of the latest, more dangerous coronavirus variants from infecting their community is thus very unwise. Now joining us are two of the three authors of the study, Dr. Philip Alvelda, who is the CEO and chairman of BrainWorks Foundry Inc., a U.S.-based developer of AI-enhanced healthcare technologies and services? Prior to BrainWorks, Dr. Alvelda was a program manager at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, Biological Technologies Office, where he developed and ran national-scale R&D programs and technologies. And Thomas Ferguson joins us. He is. He is the Institute for New Economic Thinking's director of research projects and a member of its advisory board. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Not able to join us is the third author, Dr. Deepti Gurdasani, who did much of the research for the study, and is a clinical epidemiologist and statistical geneticist and senior lecturer at the William Harvey Research Institute in London. And We hope to get her on sometime in the future. All right. Let's start with the latest news, the CDC new guidance. Philip, your paper says the new guidelines from the CDC on reopening schools are based on outdated science and could spark a new upsurge of the epidemic. Uh, if you're right, how does the CDC get this so wrong and how? what exactly did they do that was so wrong? Yeah. So I think
1: it's important to understand that from the outset, this pandemic has been a completely novel experience for the scientific community at large. And when we began taking data uh, on what was happening with the coronavirus a year ago, uh, it, it really was a, a complete and utter search in the wilderness, in the dark, where we really didn't even, didn't even have a, a, a clear idea of where to look, how to look, what data should be taken. Um, and, and really, um, we had a very, very sparse and, and faulty view of what was happening with the coronavirus. And at the time the CDC was struggling to interpret uh, you know, vast arrays of data from different countries. Uh, and there were vast political pressures about what they should say and shouldn't say uh, that uh, you know, we, we can talk about uh, if we decide to get into the political elements. But I think most importantly, the, the critical failure uh, was for our country at large, the CDC in particular, uh, to really carefully listen to the international scientists who were preceding us in the course of the virus. Um, Scientists in uh, Wuhan knew very early on that the studies were showing a high likelihood of airborne transmission. When the Diamond Princess passengers were infected with seemingly no way that they should have been infected in their isolated cabins, uh, there was a a lot of discussion that very likely uh, the transmission was through the ducts of the ship had to be airborne. Um, and then finally, kind of the, the nail in the coffin of the international groups on the Asian side uh, was the, uh, the case in Korea of the, um, of the woman in the church, who by singing and, and attending church services, uh, infected some 2000 people. Uh, through the course of uh, a day and day and a half of of just being in and around the church, where the vast majority of them were nowhere near close enough to her uh, to be within any kind of six-foot radius. And at that point, the Korean authorities, the public health officials, determined, yes, it was airborne. And in fact, there was uh, a great deal of supporting evidence to show that when you talk and eat and sing, in particular, as they were in the church, uh, that you actually generate more... Uh, airborne virus-carrying particles. So this was in March of last year, more than a year ago. Uh, since then, you know, we have assembled a, a group of technical experts that, that we've been working with uh, over the whole period. Uh, and one of the kind of um, technical leaders of our group, Kim Prather, uh, who's a specialist in aerosol chemistry at Scripps in San Diego, uh, did some groundbreaking work uh, a little, uh, a little less than a year ago now. Uh, that definitively showed that the virus particles were carried in small-sized, um, you know, sub-micron particles. So that's you know the equivalent of um, uh, that, that size particle behaves more or less like cigarette smoke. Okay, and and she showed that definitively, and that the the infectious doses could be carried in those particles, uh, and in fact survived the trip through the air, and in fact would stay in the air for prolonged periods. Um, and and the the smoke analogy really is a, quite a good one. So, I think that the the science was there uh, as 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 of a year ago. But I but I want to highlight that you know science um, science is a process that we're used to witnessing over decades. You know the history of science is that there's a general body of knowledge that recognizes what seems to be true, and then someone comes up with a new tool or an instrument or approach. Uh, and says, hey, you know, using my new tool, I, I, I think I've discovered something new, and what do you think? And then there's usually like a decade-long process of, of verification and, and validation and repeating the experiment and uh, where you slowly build you know, scientific consensus around some new information. But in this coronavirus, it's growing exponentially. We don't have the time. So that whole process has had to be accelerated faster than the scientific community has ever operated before. Uh, so I think that that part of what you're seeing really is is not necessarily strictly malfeasance. It's just the the threshes and the throes of of science at work, but going faster than it's ever gone before. And now people with extreme attention are kind of looking at all the sausage making in the factory uh, to see the fact that not everyone agrees. And I think that the danger in these types of situations is when you have politicians who cannot pick out who are the real innovators, who are the polymaths that are putting together all of the disparate clues from the different disciplines. Uh, It's very hard to
0: decide, you know, who to listen to. Uh, Uh, Given that we're sort of into this territory about why and some of the political pressures, let's let's do that and then we'll dig more into the report. Tom, uh, the, The this idea, or this evidence that this was airborne primarily, it, as as Philip says, it's been around for like almost a year. It took the World Health Organization, I don't know, almost a year to actually conclude that this was airborne. I mean, is it really the, that the fact that once you acknowledge it's airborne, it has enormous economic consequences? It's, you can't just clean some surfaces, and you have to really think about closing down parts of the economy. And, and and did they ignore the science because of those pressures for quite some time?
2: Well, the question here is they. I think one needs to go back and just add a point to the, the obviously valid point that Philip just made, which is the asymptomatic character. The people weren't used to figuring out there could be lots of people walking around who were, in fact, sick and who gave no indication of it, that, uh, along with the airborne question uh, I think that really did throw people for a loop. And it took folks a, long, a rather long time to sort of come to grips with that. I mean, that you, in effect, you had zombies who didn't look like zombies. They weren't you know, dripping blood around their uh, teeth and things like that. That really is something of a problem. But, okay, my take on this is, might be, all right, first, if you go back and read uh, Bob Woodward's book on Trump, You can see that Trump knows fairly early on this thing might be airborne. And then I think it was Matt Pottinger, the uh, National Security Council uh, rep for China, the guy dealing with China. And he he gave an interview right after he left the administration saying, well, he knew from his Chinese contacts this thing was pretty well airborne real fast. And they were apparently actually wearing masks in that part of the National Security Council, if not everywhere else uh, there um and so uh and i've heard guys and i know philip has too who has who have been around in various investigations and some people knew even in late january from that uh this probably was airborne now um so there's a lot of indications but you know there, there is this problem of how do you not rush to judgment, I mean, the consensus point that Philip makes, but it does, it's perfectly obvious, I think, that the political pressures uh, early on, the problem with the airborne uh, character of this was, then you needed masks. And so, Fauci and a lot of people who should have known better, this is not a case of politicians versus scientists, were saying, well, you don't really need masks, They won't help. And this thing was being repeated. Now, when you look around, this led to lots of conflicts inside hospitals. Because I mean, I know of cases myself. I've talked to people on this. where You had, for instance, um, MDs who were, in many cases, were belonging to international groups. They were just on the uh, internet. And they knew pretty well, pretty fast, that they'd better get masks. And then they get fired from their hospital, as actually happened. Uh, Not to one, but to several people I know. Uh, And there were whole cases of nurses being sent home and stuff like that. Um, And so, yeah, this goes very quickly to uh, lots of um, fairly politically sensitive uh, things. And uh, so I I do think that the airborne problem has been badly dealt with by both not only OSHA, an occupational safety and health uh, administra- agency there uh but also by the cdc and for sure yeah the politics of this were it was going to have to change very quickly there almost immediately there arose problems in the meatpacking industry because people were really dropping an enormous number i mean you had cases of more more than 100 at the time in some instances you know over a relatively short period so the question is what are you going to do and there were some noises about well we got to do better I mean and then it turned out later that the as you probably know Paul in um, fact Philip may have been the person who pointed that out to me first actually that the uh, some of the supervisors and some of the meat packing plants were making bets on who dropped first uh, you now this is something of a problem uh, it's a real problem so yeah I think at every point in this the question of politics and economics has entered the airborne thing is peculiarly sensitive because you got to really redesign stuff. Uh, you might be able to do it in some cases with relatively cheap builders and things like that. In other cases, you know, you got buildings with windows that won't open no matter what you do, um, and uh, you know it's not going to be as bad as some places where they find out the ventilation systems don't work for 20 years correctly I know because I lived in an institution <laughs> like that where it turned out the intake from the trucking stuff was actually going straight That the truck exha- uh, exhaust was going straight into the ventilation system in the university how about that one sports fans you know it's a real Malala moment um well anyway uh so yeah this is super sensitive stuff and it has been so everywhere pretty much in the planet uh though uh the u.s strikes me over the longer run as sort of peculiarly refractory to anybody doing much about it you know the cdc is still kind of funny on the but they finally got around to formally acknowledging it uh, it's an amazingly short period ago Um, And just look closely, even under Biden, who's done much better on most of this stuff. The OSHA uh, and the other agencies, they're a little slow on the question of how do we restructure this. And uh, we've got money to redo ventilation while not telling anybody you really got to do it, except in fine print so dense nobody can read it. Uh, It's not a good situation.
0: All right, so let's go dig into the report, because the CDC saying three feet is as safe as six feet. And in your report, uh, Philip, you're essentially saying, well, maybe they're right, but that isn't the point. The point is six feet isn't safe because it's all about the air in the room. Uh, and and how, that seems so obvious once <laughs> you say it, and once it's acknowledged, and now it is. everybody. It's all, it's all acknowledged this is airborne, and it's like cigarette smoke. So I don't understand how does the CDC come up with the three feet and not talk about get your ventilation systems working? And then well,
1: I, I think I think they're under a tremendous amount of pressure politically uh, to support the Biden initiative in opening the schools as rapidly as they can. And and don't get me wrong, I, I have two uh, school age children, one a freshman in college, and another uh, a sophomore in high school that are here in my house doing mostly remote learning. Um, but you know, we're in an affluent suburb with 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 good schools and uh, you know, we happen to be on the 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 privileged side of of that equation where you know most of the urban school districts, um, you know, they're either closed and don't have a good the remote learning option or uh, or they've they've been forced to stay open and and you know faculty and and students and parents are are ending up in the hospital. so there's there's really um, tremendous consequence to, staying closed and having the schools closed for in-person learning uh so I'm, I'm not overlooking that that's a tremendous a tremendous burden um but but to lose a parent or to lose a teacher uh for want of uh, a couple of months of of rushed preparations at the end of this school year doesn't seem to be a great trade-off to me and and i think that um when you look at the consequence of of having the schools open uh what does it mean for a cdc that for the last year has had several credibility crises to lose even more credibility by you know replacing the current guidance which is droplets and wipe downs and plexiglass and hand washing which we now know is is no longer the primary mode of transmission in fact never was and and you need to replace all of those measures or or augment them at a much higher priority. With the lead issue, is that you've got to filter the air and it's got to be fresh air, uh, so that you can you know preserve the, the safety in the room. And so that's that's um you know yet another credibility crisis on top of the masks, on top of the asymptomatic carriers, on now now the third one you know the uh, the ventilation. So, so I think that um, you know it's important for the CDC to to have national credibility, so that people will listen to them and, and respond properly in public health crises. Um, so it's a it's a tough
0: it's a tough uh, tough situation. All right. So just so just to to be clear about this, what you're saying, if schools don't fix the ventilation, which Mostly means if they're not given the time and the financing to fix the ventilation, because I'm sure they would all like to, um, they shouldn't reopen. Is it, it just it's as straightforward as that. I, I, that I, I, I believe so. Yes, or they should find some
1: way to reopen in venues where there's more ventilation. Is uh,
0: is open windows
1: enough? Uh, open windows can be an assistance, but you know the there are easy ways to measure. You know, if you have a tiny CO2 detector, I don't have one here with me at, at the moment, but uh, a tiny CO2 detector can measure, you know, how much of the air in the room has been exhaled by someone else. And that's a good metric for how, how rapidly you're evacuating the breathed
0: aerosols from the room. Uh, if you open- the, the, hang on, Philip, hang on. I've been listening to this COVID coverage, like, with a lot of focus for a year, unless I'm I'm dumb. I've never heard anyone say what you just said, about a CO2 detector. I mean, it seems so obvious and simple that every school classroom could have one. Yeah,
1: or you just need even need one per school and walk around the rooms during the day and just look at the measurements. Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively straightforward thing to do and, and it automatically accounts for how many people are in the room and how likely are they to exhale and, and how quickly is the, uh, the room being evacuated. Um, it's not the only solution, but, but that's a cheap, simple, easy way to evaluate how you're doing. If you can open up a few windows, set up a box fan or two, you can clear out a room in uh, somewhere between 6 and 12 minutes. So that's a huge boon, and it will do more than any of the washdowns or the plexiglass uh, would do inside the enclosed spaces.
0: Uh, uh, okay, there's another, I think, really important thing that jumps out in your report that, that I haven't really seen clearly elsewhere. Maybe it is, but anyway, Tom, uh, we've been told by many authorities, including where I am in Ontario, but it's, it's true all you know everywhere, really, that it's safer for kids to be in school than in the community because most of the transmission goes from the community into the schools and not the other way around. But your study says, and I'm quoting, that... The increases in prevalence of infection among school age groups preceded rise of infection in other age groups. This has a vital implication. The new studies suggest that infections among children at school do not just reflect infection rates in the community, rather they drive increases in infection within the community through spreading from schools into homes and from there to the broader community. Okay, so Tom, this is rather startling information because the press, the media is full of this idea. Get your kids into school because they'll actually be safer there, and so will the community be safer.
2: Paul, this goes back to that point about the asymptomatic uh, transmission of this stuff, that lots of people had it and didn't know they had it. Uh, And so when people go into schools on the first wave of studies to find out who's sick and who's not, they only usually test the people who are obviously sick, um, and so they don't realize that there are all these uh, pupils sitting there, uh, walking around, and then going home who are in fact either that they, they may be spreading it right there in the classroom, almost certainly are, but they don't pick that up. Um, and then only if you start testing everybody in the in the place or real random samples, if you've got impossibly large. Uh, po- populations of the school, and there are in the U.S., people haven't done it much, but they did do it in Britain. Um, our colleague, uh, Deepthi, uh, was very much involved in those studies. Um, then uh, you find out real fast that the infection rate is much higher than you think. And That second wave of studies, in other words, wipes out the, the conclusions of the first. This point's not taken in most of the stuff that I've seen recycled in the last few weeks uh, especially one is tempted to say in the Wall Street Journal but not alone where they just um, keep talking about past experiences and you know the it's not too reassuring to hear a school administrators saying well of course our own experience on this well what are these guys doing we know this was a point that actually uh, it's very useful to make, not just on ventilation, but you really need to do serious testing regimes. Uh, you need to do them not only in schools, but every place else. And this is one where I would fault not just the Trump administration, where you'll almost never go wrong if you fault them on a COVID uh, thing, but the Biden people have not really taken hold of this either. I mean they're not really they have now given money to the schools and the schools can use that money for testing and indeed there was I think another little appropriation that went through specifically on testing but uh, you know we have enormous problems with just trying to figure out who's really sick it's not obvious a lot of the time and you got a lot of people who just don't show it and so a school administrator says well our experience is they don't get sick with this or that. I saw that in a Michigan thing trying to say it was only the folks in the athletics. I don't believe it. They were transmitting in the classes. I'd like to
1: see some real evidence. We do have some of that evidence now, right? We can uh, we can look at some of the uh, breakdowns of infection by age and hospitalizations by age. Um, and in this new wave, we can actually see the younger grades, you know, trending upwards when the schools are open, trending down. Yeah, that was the UK data. No, no, but, that's yeah, but it's, exactly. been, it's been repeated. Uh, it's been repeated in Michigan, in Canada, in yeah. Germany, yeah. Uh, Scotland. So, so this is not a, a unitary result in one spot. This is something that's being repeated over and over. And and I think part of the challenge early on was that um, there is a, a curious dependence on age, where the younger you are, the less likely you are to show symptoms. But you can still have the disease and you can still be conveying it very, very heavily. In fact, there were some children that showed no symptom whatsoever, and yet were generating higher viral loads than even ICU patients that were adults. And so when you have this uh, this situation where the majority of children who are infected are not obviously so, uh, and they become the drivers of the pandemic. And so this was one of the conclusions of the uh, UK study that triggered a flood of other studies internationally, which said quite unequivocally that uh, having the schools open and the children, the asymptomatic children in particular, they were the primary driver of the pandemic. And so I think that there's a, a couple of points. Uh, you know, One, of course, is the risk to the children. Which I think has been understated there's been a focus on just will they die or not risk of death admittedly, very low for children, but it turns out that there are many many side effects, even when you 're asymptomatic and so the the symptoms that you can uh, the, the side effects that, that can accrue include heart involvement long term lung impairment, cognitive impairment that lasts months, neurological disorders uh, and so you know you hear about long covid, but much of this that's happening to the children is not even being attributed to COVID because they were never tested for COVID. They were never diagnosed as having COVID. And some of those side effects now are being misattributed to other conditions. So this issue of of public health is a public health issue for the children personally. It's a real one uh, that we haven't really fully quantified. So we're putting the children at risk in an experiment. What percentage of them will suffer these long-term consequences? We don't know exactly. We think it's about 8%, maybe, but that's a lot of kids at risk. And besides the individual risk to the kids, you've got the fact that the, the continuing school is now definitively a driver of the pandemic with this new strain. If you look at uh, the UK, for example, they were not able to halt the exponential growth of the new B117 variant until they shut the schools. They had closed everything else. Tried to keep the schools open. That was not enough to contain the new, more infectious strain. They had to shut the schools.
2: Yeah.
0: just, uh, cool. just one thing. This, what I have two eight-year-olds, and I got vaccinated, and so did my wife. So we figured, okay, the schools, they're leaving the windows open and such. It's safe to put the kids in. Uh, but in Ontario, where we are now, we were living in the U.S. until recently. The senior health a uh, doctor said there's not much point testing. By the time you get the results, uh, it's too late to do much with it anyway. So all they're really testing here is if someone actually is found to be positive. Then they start testing. Uh, in fact, in our school, someone was just found positive. So today, our kids are getting tested. But there's no testing outside of an actual outbreak. Uh, well, that,
1: that's, a, that's a critical um, opportunity, I would say. Uh, and, and the Biden administration has uh, understood this and they are starting to put money behind it. But it's just going to take a little while to spool up the capability. So the, the critical issue that I think you, you nicely highlighted was the turnaround time of the test. You know, when, when someone can be infected on one day and reach peak infectiousness in two and a half to three days, that tells you that even if I tested on Monday, by Thursday, that test no longer has protective value. And to really prevent that infected person from spreading the coronavirus to other people in the schools, you need a faster turnaround service to pull them out of the community before they infect others. So the key is not just testing, but fast testing and doing it regularly, at least twice a week. So that has an economic implication. Which schools can afford it? How cheap is the test? How quickly can the laboratory test services turn these things around?
0: Hey Tom, so tell me on this testing issue. I'm 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 doing this to my face here because I'm just thinking of my kids in school right now. That I don't. I read a story, and my my memory and the actual numbers may be a bit wrong, but there was a city, a small city in China, small meaning like 12 million, and apparently tested like the whole city in three weeks or something like that. I don't understand. Why isn't there mass testing in North America with a quick turnaround? What's stopping it?
2: Well, the short, blunt uh, story is I think the political will wasn't there to do it early on. Now, technologically, it would have been tough, but Philip can talk very nicely about this since he's been involved with testing um, in a big way. now it's around, but what you've got are you've got school systems that have, in many cases, pre-existing contracts with clunky old test stuff, and they don't have much of a budget for it. they didn't until the new uh, the new Biden you know aid bill passed. Um, and they're sort of sitting around locked in with a bunch of old contracts. Well, I, I would like to interject one other point though, which is i I, I cannot fathom why the administration has not moved to more uh, universally distributed masks. I still don't understand why the US Post Office can't give everybody in the country three or four masks that are all right. I understand that that would take some time to get. People didn't have any and nobody wanted to admit that. That was early on, that was plainly the main reason why folks were sort of in effect covering up the aerosol form of transmission here. But we're well past that now uh and it is said and i think this is probably true that the chinese are certainly exporting their kn95 masks again um and you could have there's been plenty of time to ramp up production in the united states and it has been ramped up i mean 3m and these other companies have done it um but it's just when you go out on the internet uh, and try to buy stuff it's like You think you're in the grand bazaar and you're shopping for clothes and you don't know what you can buy is this really going to fit you etc etc and i do not understand why uh anybody in the nobody in the united states has really tried to systematize that uh better and you know i just look around at my neighbors and so and i can see everybody doing everything from you know perfectly reasonable masks especially in the affluent areas, to stuff that I would regard as something out of Pirates for the Caribbean or something um, instead. And uh, I think this is still going to be a problem in schools. And I don't think this is going to get solved uh, by any. It's crazy to have it solved individually by uh, most of the authorities in the hands of the states. there, yeah, there uh, uh, you know, Tom. There
1: was a. There was, in fact, a plan last March or April uh, to mail every American uh, a good quality KN95 or N95 mask, uh, and the Trump administration killed it before uh, before the plan could get off the ground. There was now. Listen, it, it's
0: it's 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 fully legitimate to blame the Trump administration, as Tom said. You can't go wrong because they completely fucked this one up. Uh, but there have been predictions of airborne. Uh, pandemics for years. Uh, what is the movie? Contagion is an airborne yep. pandemic. Uh, I mean, it's like you're watching a news report from today. Uh, there was so many uh, advice from epidemiologists to get ready for this. And and the Obama administration had a group working on this. And still, the supply chain on masks was completely lacking. Uh, I, I don't get that.
1: Well, I, th- I think uh, in that case, you know, I was part of the biological technologies office that put many of those Plans and prediction and warning systems in place in China, uh, and and so we had that system up and running, you know, during the Obama administration. Um, but I think something that's not getting a lot of uh, press these days is just the general problem of uh, supply chain risk and and uh, resilience to things like a pandemic in the United States, where you know we have a broad healthcare system that has offshored most of the expensive production of goods, whether it's drugs masks, PPE, you know, pretty much every aspect of the medical supply value chain. And what we discovered is that when there's a global pandemic, a country will supply itself before everyone else. And so, of course, in the heat of last spring, uh, those value chains broke, and we did not have any local production uh, capacity in the United States to offer us our own resilience and protection when China stopped shipping the goods. Um, You know, to China's credit, uh, they, you know, isolated the virus very early. Uh, they suppressed it within a couple months, uh, and they reopened their manufacturing in the bulk of the uh, uh, of the country uh, and began shipping masks by, you know, mid year. Um, and then, of course, there's there's political challenges to accepting, you know, masks from China and should we do it or not. So those those all were conversations that were were happening. But the critical issue was this profit-driven healthcare system, so attentive to the their margins. Uh, pushed the production of critical supplies offshore where we did not have control or access. Uh, And I think that this requires um, some really deep thought for a number of reasons, Uh, social justice reasons and access to healthcare with money being one of them. Uh, But of course, uh, local supply chains and local manufacturing being a critical national resource that uh, we need to rethink. Uh, And right now, to my knowledge, I I don't see too many of the hospital chains rejiggering their pharmaceutical supply chains or uh, their supply chains for some of these materials uh, beyond you know a rather modest ramp up from the local production. So I think that there, um, there's a good cause for uh, rethinking national scale use of our sovereign wealth uh, to improve our resilience.
0: In Canada, uh, we went even a step further, which we allowed the uh, labs that could make vaccines to close down. And completely rely on offshore, mostly European sources of vaccine. Yeah. So we're way behind in having vaccinations in Canada, and now the EU's just said they're going to have a, what is it? A, I think a six-week hold on exporting vaccines to anywhere else. So Canada, has all all the Canadian plans are all now screwed up. Supply uh, chain nationalism, so, right? Yeah. Go ahead, Tom.
2: Well, a couple of issues here. One is. Uh, yes the supply chain issue is gigantic i i that's it's clear and that's if you're looking for why can't you you know get an american-made mask or just get any mask in say april of last year uh go right there that's right um but there is also the broader question of public spending on health care and austerity in general i mean in the u.s after um, the iraq war was uh was quite nervous about biological terrorism, and for a while they built stuff up. All that went down by the boards. In, In a place like the UK, it went down largely on a, as far as I can tell, by a public government initiative. The Cameron administration, you know, government came in and cut spending like crazy in that. In the US case, the private character of the healthcare system, and in particular when private equity firms went in and started swallowing up hospital chains, because that's like putting, uh, if you like, profit motives on steroids, and it, it's not an accident. I think that the very first doctor fired in the United States for complaining that he and his staff did not have proper protection was working at a chain, at working in a um, a chain owned by private equity folks. Now that brings us to the question: What else went wrong? This is not the same thing as a supply chain story. It's the occupational health and safety question. Um, OSHA. In the case of one doctor I knew, uh, the lady got fired. She was um, she she was seeing patients, and she knew early on that she needed masks, and she needed them, and the, her patients needed them. So the hospital she was working at fired her. Um, she appealed, um, claiming, uh, trying to use, um, I think an OSHA procedure. Um, and the local and regional folks sided with her. The national OSHA said no, they just said, Look, you're a part timer. She was on, uh, formally not on the staff, and they tell you, tough. Um, I mean. This is regulatory problems and bluntly labor relations that are really at the heart of stuff. It's clear that the US whistleblowing laws are too weak. It's clear, you know, OSHA is still behind the curve, though they're, I mean, finally Biden told them they had to issue some kind of emergency standard. And I think they just did something the other day. Um, But OSHA has been very slow to move. Um, and OSHA of course does not regulate public high school public schools at all It could presumably issue something on private but the public ones you know you're gonna have to rely I guess probably on the state authorities there we have a serious occupational health and safety issue it's quite general and the supply I agree completely with everything Philip said about the, su- the supply chain issue uh, and the, if you like the globalization of production to the cheapest possible place, absolutely true. There's still the problem of if you can fire somebody for saying uh, that they need a mask and giving it to people, you're way, way beyond the pillars of Hercules in sensible policy. I mean, you're you're somewhere on cloud cuckoo yeah.
0: Well, I thought it was interesting in the CBS report and several other reports about your paper. They, they quote from the About section of the INET website, and you're a group that thinks there's a problem with, quote, free market fundamentalism. And I'm not sure if CBS and the others threw that in to somehow—I don't know if they thought it discredited. I thought it, it credited it, but I don't know what they thought. I mean, Philip, it sort of plays off what Tom was just saying Uh there's never been a better example of the failure of free market fundamentalism than the covid crisis yeah you know
1: and and i and i think that um uh one of the one of the kind of um, misconceptions we tried to address in our previous paper on on saving the economy by saving people first is that i think there was a, a a false dichotomy set up very early on that you either had to choose to help the economy and and pay money and invest in the economy or you had to you know, choose to instead spend that money uh, in things like, uh, you know, uh, abatement measures and testing and so on. Uh, And so it it was really chosen as it was framed as a as a zero sum game. Either we save the economy or we save people. So let's let's focus on the economy, of course, was the Trump uh, mantra. Um, And you know, we saw evidence of that, you know, directly. I mean, I'll I'll give you, you know, without uh, naming specific companies. Uh, you know, our company we we developed the technology to do fast, rapid um, uh, testing with fast turnaround times, uh, at very very low cost, uh, so that you could find these asymptomatic people. And you know, of course, we set out to sell it to enterprise, and we got very few takers. And I'm talking about conversations with hundreds of companies, hundreds of companies, and I would say at least sixty to seventy percent of them had an answer, something of the flavor that well, we're critical, essential services. The government has essentially given us a pass, uh, and we're not going to spend the time or money or effort to test for asymptomatics if the government doesn't force us to.
2: Paul. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, Tom, uh,
0: Tom, uh, Tom, last word.
2: Well, simply, I think particularly in recent months, there's been a kind of breakdown of the normal processes of sort of the way not only experts in politics interact but how that goes straight into public policy even on the progressive Democratic side. I mean the um, this question of the schools properly it should have been raised frankly not by us but by the leaders at least of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and it should have been much faster and earlier there. But boy, when I tried to interest folks in this, although I succeeded on the OSHA question, I got when OSHA was left out of the first Biden COVID task force, that was people did move when I sort of made some noises about this. But since then, nobody's been interested in this stuff. And you're not going to be able to protect people unless you actually try to protect them. And uh, that means there's going to have to be sort of some much, very much more direct political pressures, I think, on uh, OSHA and the CDC to sort of pay attention better, faster to uh, the facts of the case. It's 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 bothered me.
0: Well, I know what I got to do. I got to go get myself a CO2 detector and get down to the school. <laughs>
2: the Aranet Aranet 4. I'll go measure the air. four. Look, look hey? for
1: Aranet four. A R A N E T four. Tiny little device, Bluetooth, takes history, logs, everything. Great, great little unit.
0: And so a quick solution would be get that thing, get some fans to blow the fresh air, just don't open the windows, and measure and see if it's circulating the air. Oh, you,
1: you'll, you'll be able to see. You'll, you'll, you'll see as you are just in your car on the way to school and the, and the CO2 goes up, you crack the window, it'll come down. Uh, it'll track through the classes when the kids are between classes and outside the CO2 level drops. So you get a beautiful view of the whole uh, the whole day and the risk for the whole, the whole the whole experience.
0: What you're really saying is until you these schools actually get it right systemically. Yeah, well, right? I think I think that's a, shouldn't, shouldn't even be. I open think, I think
1: this. that's a that's a really important message. I, I, if I was to characterize what I think people need to pay attention to. It's number one, if you're a city or government official, you need to be looking at the cases and exponential growth in your community and acting quickly based on that data. If you see exponential growth, you have to act fast. If you delay, you'll suffer some more serious consequences, and if you delay long enough, a lockdown is inevitable. For the schools and the guidance coming from agencies like the CDC, they need to be clear about what are the big impacts. The big impacts, not the minor ones. The big impacts, masks, ventilation, frequent testing. Those are the things that now we know make the largest difference. If you just did those three things, you could open a school safely.
0: All right, gentlemen, thanks very much. Thanks, Paul. Uh, And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage, because the only way we keep doing this is with your support. YouTube, come and donate and click the subscribe button. Thanks again.